Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with feds or vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Staying Connected. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in these podcasts are those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of the Marfan Foundation. The Marfan Foundation is not responsible for and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in them, nor does the information constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This show is not produced by or affiliated with the Marfan Foundation or the VEDS movement. Welcome back to another season of Staying Connected. This season, we're going to talk to seven members of our community about their stories and experiences with VEDS. We'll hear from several people who have a VEDS diagnosis themselves, including a mom who lost her son to VEDS last year, and we'll talk to a spouse of someone with VEDS who is also a mom of someone with VEDS. We also have a returning guest to talk about his experience since our last interview together about three years ago. In today's episode, the first episode of the season, we're going to hear from Sarah Fulop, who was diagnosed with VEDS after her sister died from complications following a pregnancy. Sarah has shared her diagnosis story in other places, so in this interview we'll touch on that, but we'll also be taking a deeper dive into the feelings she's been navigating with her VEDS diagnosis. Before we go over to the interview, if you want to support this show, consider joining my Patreon. For a few dollars a month, you can make sure this show continues to reach people around the world with real-life stories about VEDS. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash translucentone, and you can also support the show by sharing this podcast with people you know to help us raise awareness of VEDS around the world together. Thank you so much for your support, and a huge thanks to my current patrons who have been supporting the show already. Let's go ahead and go to the interview. Hey, Sarah, thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing your story with people around the world with VEDS. I'm so excited to have you here. I've heard like pieces of your story in other areas, and I'm just so excited to talk to you and take a deeper dive into it. So thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So first off, introduce yourself to everybody. All right. Uh, My name is Sarah Fulop. I'm 24 years old. I live here in San Diego. Uh, My parents immigrated from Hungary about 35 years ago, but we were all born and raised here. Um, I'm one of eight kids, um, and most of us are still in San Diego, and I am currently a biochemist. So, Oh, what a cool profession. Yeah. That is really awesome. Yeah, it's it served me. During college, I was like, why the heck did I do this to myself? I hate this. And it's been kind of cool to see how I've been able to use it um, with this diagnosis. So, Oh, very cool. Maybe we'll get to talk about that a little later. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So how were you diagnosed with VEDS? Like, how did all of this come up? The official diagnosis came because my sister was diagnosed um, with VEDS um, shortly after um, passing away after having a child and she tested positive. And so they, um, tested our immediate family and I tested positive as well, which at the time wasn't a very big surprise, but, um, the official diagnosis came after my sister tested positive. I'm so sorry that you lost your sister. Thank you. Did her child have it? No. So thankfully, um, my my niece did not get it. Uh, we found out that my mom has what's called a mosaic mutation. 
And it's kind of an interesting situation where um, not all of your cells carry the mutation. And so I think they estimated something about 30% of her cells have it, but it ended up in her ovaries. And so of the eight kids that my mom had, um, three of us were um, inherited the condition. And so my brother actually passed away 22 years ago from an aortic dissection. And they thought it was maybe Marfan's at the time, um, but didn't really do any genetic testing. And we got evaluated for Marfan's, but they didn't really find anything. Um, but then it wasn't until 2020 when my sister passed away that we got the official genetic diagnosis. So it's presumed that my brother had it as well. And so the three of us have it. And my brother was 15, so he didn't have any kids. And then my sister's daughter did not inherit it. So if I don't have any kids, mutation ends with me. So thankfully, none of my other siblings have it. Um, but three of us out of the eight from my mom have gotten it. And that is so interesting. The mosaicism is something that I wish I understood so much better. Like I feel like it's such a, a newly talked about thing relatively. Um, how how did this all feel for you? Um, (laughs) well, it's kind of a loaded question. Um, I think we could talk hours about that. Um, the actual diagnosis in a lot of ways brought some clarity and healing to our family. Um, we never really knew why my sister, my brother passed away. He was a healthy 15 year old and I was three years old at the time. So I don't really have any memory of him. Um, but he was fine one day playing with his friends. He had all this, he had this sharp pain and my family took him home and he was throwing up and sick and they thought he just had a fever because it was a flu was going around. And then a couple hours later, they ended up calling the ambulance and with, it wasn't even a 12 hour time span. He passed away and he was 15 and it was just like utter shock for my family. Like there was no indication he had any heart condition or anything. Um, and the doctors are like, our best guess is maybe he had this new, um, Marfan's mutation. And so we got all like, I don't know how much you know about Marfan's, but they, they do these like physical tests, like, you know, your arm span and how tall you are, but like, <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm five, two and a hundred and something pounds. And so none of us, they didn't match our family. And my one sister had a heart murmur. She was born with a congenital heart murmur and had like a, it's called pulmonary stenosis where one of your valves is like, I guess, um, smaller than the other. And so they put like this balloon pump in her, but that can be congenital and not necessarily have to do with Marfan's or anything like that. So besides her, like none of us really had any other conditions. So they're like, okay, maybe he just had this random mutation. They knew it was some kind of connective tissue disorder because there's no other explanation for a 15 year old boy to have a spontaneous aortic dissection. Um, but they didn't, it was 2000 and I don't really know how well genetic testing was going on. We were never referred to like a cardiologist outside of that initial evaluation and we all seemed healthy. So they kind of just, um, stopped there, but like, you know, there was always this big question of like, why did this happen? How old were you when he passed away? So it was 2000. I was born 97. He passed away March, 2000. So I was like almost three years old, um, about three years old when he passed. So I have like one vague memory from his funeral, but other than that, I don't, I don't remember anything about him. I grew up like with pictures of him on the wall and I heard the story, um, my parents didn't talk about it a lot, but, you know, I definitely grew up with that 
knowledge that, you know, anything can happen at any time. And just because you're healthy and young doesn't mean that you're, um, you get a free pass with medical things. And so I think it, I was raised with just a healthy sense of like, um, you know, like to, to value family and value life because you never really know what's going to happen. And I just, I'm really admire my parents, how they kept our family together. And despite all that tragedy, um, but like, yeah, growing up, there was subtle signs of like my sister and I, we always were bruising so easily. And we always thought we were like anemic or something could never really figure it out. My mom was so annoyed with me because I was always ending up in the ER with stitches. Like you can't see, but I literally have like eight different stitches all on my forehead. And she's like, your, your skin was paper thin. You would barely bump your head and your skin would split open. And she's like, I was always dragging you to the ER to get stitches. And it was so frustrating. And I was like, sorry. <laughs> and my sister, she kept always like spraining her ankle. So there, I don't know, there wasn't really, besides her like one heart procedure, like her heart was fine for most of her life. Like the doctor said like, Hey, this is, we caught it and we fixed it. Just keep following up and you'll probably be fine. Um, and like, I don't know, besides like congenital migraines in our family and the easy bruising, we didn't really have any other real indications of, of this feds. Um, so when I was 21, um, I'd had different autoimmune things happening and then my lung randomly collapsed and I was like, what the heck is this? Like, I didn't even know it was possible for your lung collapse. It took me like a whole week to figure out what was happening. And I like full on panic because the first thought that ran into my mind is like, my brother died from an aortic dissection and I'm 21 having a lung collapse. Like this is not normal. Like nothing about, this is not a coincidence. This is not normal. And, um, I think the doctors knew that, but there's other reasons why you can have a spontaneous lung collapse. It's pretty uncommon, but there are other reasons. And so like, I remember reading my chart and like, they, they talked about that, but I don't know. I didn't have any other like cardiovascular signs, um, at the time. Um, and they're like, well, sometimes it's just like weirdly happens and you can be born with cysts in your lungs that just randomly rupture. Um, they did tell me that it's possible for it to happen again. So they said to always keep a lookout, but yeah, like I got tested for all these autoimmune things and got all this blood work. So thankfully the doctor I had was actually very well versed in a bunch of different reasons why you can have lung collapse. And so he did like all the tests except for refer me to a geneticist. <laughs> so like, yeah. So like I got, I actually got all this blood work. I got a bronchoscopy. I literally for six months, it was like so frustrating. I was already getting testing done for, um, I was diagnosed with MS when I was 21. And so I was already having a bunch of medical stuff going on. And so that's why they were kind of going along more the autoimmune route thought maybe I was misdiagnosed and had lupus or different things. Cause that can affect your lungs. And I had lung nodules. And so like to their credit, like they were looking at a, diff a lot of different options, but I don't know, just that resounding thought in my mind was like, my brother had an aortic dissection. It has to be genetic. Like there's something here that we're missing. And it was really frustrating because I didn't know who else to talk to. I felt like I talked to like six different doctors and like, we're all just missing one piece. And, um, it was really frustrating. I went that year. I had two more lung collapses back to back. And then I had a surgery that didn't really work. And then, yeah. And then six months later, my sister has this traumatic birth experience and 
finally that's when like all the pieces came together. And so it was uh, a pretty dramatic diagnosis and um, yeah. So I don't know to answer your original question. I don't really like anywhere between relief to guilt, to anger, to shock, to, I don't even know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so you lost your sister and then got found out that she had this thing, which also explains your brother's death. Mm -hmm. and then you get it Mm -hmm. like that is so much to go through kind of all at once like did this all happen like within like a couple months of the of like her death so yeah so well my brother died in 2000 so fast forward 20 years I had I had my first seizure August 2019 20 sorry 2018 so August 2018 so from August 2018 to March 2019 I was getting evaluated for my MS. And then March 2019, I had my first lung collapse. June 2019, I had two more lung collapses. July 2019, I had my surgery. And then December 2019, I had another lung collapse. And then March 2020 is when my sister died. So it was like back-to-back things. And like literally my brain, I was just trying to process my own medical trauma and that whole crappy year I went through. And then like I would just graduated college, which was kind of a traumatic experience in and itself. It was my senior year and I like almost couldn't graduate because I kept ending up in the hospital and it was like the hardest chemistry classes I was taking. And I was just like beyond done. So I finally had like a month and a half off from college and I was traveling and I was like, okay, like let's regroup, let's figure out what's going on. And then like literally two weeks later, I get this call that my sister was two days away from her due date. Well, first we get the call. First we find out that COVID is happening. So that was like March 12th or something. And then we're like, oh no, the world's like falling apart. And then like two days later, I get this call from my mom that said my sister went in to get induced and her pregnant and her deliveries really complicated and she's in critical condition. And so it was just like, bam, 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 bad news. And so when I first found out the the diagnosis, the immediate thought was like, it was like two separate things. It was like the grief of losing my sister was like one thing. And then like the other part of my mind, I was like, okay, I have an answer. And this is kind of nice because I finally have an answer for what's been happening for this whole year. And then six months later, it was like, I remember calling Megan, um, Dr. Lang's nurse and I like flipped out to her and I was like I don't know what this means like am I gonna die tomorrow like I just like flipped out and it was just like a switch turned on in my brain and I was like oh like this is not just past stuff explaining like this is gonna follow me the rest of my life and it might get worse and I think that's when like all those emotions started coming in like oh this isn't just affecting my siblings this is affecting me and my life and my future and my family even more, like not only do they have the trauma of losing two siblings, like they might have to worry about losing me too. And that's when just like all those emotions and like, I almost lost it for a couple months. Um, but uh, so yeah, it's kind of coming, kind of coming waves. <laughs> it's truly a lot to go through to get a vet's diagnosis, especially I think when you've lost family as well and close family and had all of this medical stuff happen. And a lot of us have like, have had medical stuff happen before Mm -hmm. we get a diagnosis. And there is that like strange mix of feelings, like relief. And like, I was really angry for a little while 
And you mentioned that too. You mentioned anger and I think guilt. Do you want to take a deeper dive into like the origins of those feelings and then also how you've kind of dealt with them over the last couple of years? Yeah, well, like I said earlier, um, it always bothered me that that whole 2019, it bothered me that I didn't get an answer. And I was like, I knew I needed to pursue it more and I need, knew I wasn't talking to the right people. But like, it was just such an exhausting year. Like it was so confusing and chaotic. And I just honestly didn't have the energy to like go talk to another doctor. Like you probably went through this. It's just like, you feel like you have, I think I had one month, I had like 10 doctor's appointments and it's just like, you can't live your life. And so you, sometimes you just kind of give up because you're just like, okay, at least I'm stable. I don't really have an answer, but I'm stable. And then like, it wasn't even six months later. So my sister, I found out my sister was pregnant. Like she told us that September, 2019, and she knew what was going on, but I don't think any of us really put the pieces together. And, um, yeah. And so when she started going through all that stuff and like, you know, the name feds came up, I was just like, just that, like, I had just had this huge feeling of dread and I was like, Oh my land, like this makes so much sense now. And it's just like, I really was angry at myself for not pursuing it more. And I was really angry at my doctors for like not catching it. And like, I kind of felt like part of her death was, I don't, I'm not necessarily that it was my fault, but it was just like, if I would have pursued that more and maybe talked to the one right doctor, maybe she would have gone into her delivery knowing it and maybe something could have been done differently. And I know that she got the best care she had. And I know that pregnancy is very complicated with the feds and um, it was just a perfect storm. And I think she got the best care she possibly could have. And I know her doctors tried really hard to save her, but it was just like that that old, that thought kept replaying in my mind was just like, Oh, like I was so close. And like, I can't believe it was like, I can't believe we had to lose another person to finally get an answer. Like, this is not fair. And like, I was really angry at my doctors for a very long time. Like I like lost trust in like a lot of my doctors and I just, um, yeah, I was just angry at myself for kind of giving up a little bit. Um, giving up on pursuing answers. And people would tell me, they're like, you know, you can't do that. You can't say, what if I did this? But it was just like, it was, it was like this perfect storm. Like it was just like retrospectively, like there are so many clues that like just all of us missed. And like, even her doctors have said too, like, you know, we should have taken this family history more seriously. Like they've learned a lot from our case. Like, um, you know, when Lizzie was getting checkups with her pregnancy, like knowing that you have a brother die with the aortic dissection, like that's a huge red flag. And like, you should send all those patients to make sure that they have cardiovascular screening during their pregnancy. And like, they did a whole podcast on her case. And we're saying like, you know, from a cardiology perspective, it's now kind of obvious in our family. Um, but yeah, so like, there was definitely things that doctor should have recognized. And like, I wish I would have pushed more for, um, but it's like, you, you can't, all you can do is, um, move forward. And all you can do is recognize where you've messed up and where even like, I've really appreciated the humility that a lot of her doctors have had. That was like, this case was tragic and it shouldn't have happened. And if things were maybe different then it probably could not happened. 
but they're like, okay, what can we learn from this? And I really appreciated my pulmonologist's response to this. Um, he didn't really know anything about beds. And um, I reached out to him a couple of weeks after my sister died and I gave him my sister's genetic, genetic diagnosis. And then I gave him mine. And then he started researching and he actually found a lot of the articles that um, even the VEDS movement has kind of worked on publishing. And so he started educating himself on VEDS and like educating his other doctors. And he's really become a really good advocate for me and has been like humble enough to say like, I don't know how to deal with this. This is you're my first patient like this. I'm not really sure what we're doing, but we're going to figure it out. And he was really supportive when I started going to Dr. Ling's office. And then I connected with a cardiologist here in San Diego. And he just, he always updates his notes and just, um, so yeah, I've, I've really been humbled by a lot of my doctor's response to it and their willingness to admit like, Hey, this is terrible. Um, but we're going to give you the best care that we can so that you don't have to go through what your sister went through. Um, so that's in some ways that's helped. Um, but yeah, it took me a long time to, I, that, that guilt still kind of bothers me sometimes about like, you know, what if something could have done, been different? Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't know if that quite answered your question, but it's, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing, um, kind of battle. Like you can only do so much. Um, and you know, doctors can only do so much and all we can do is learn from what's happened in the past so that hopefully we can do a little better in the future. Um, so, you know, I hope you know that that is not your fault. Yeah. (laughs) I hope you like, I know it's hard to, to truly like feel it and have that guilt go completely away, but I hope that you hear me when I say like, it's not your fault. I understand that, um, that exhaustion that comes from event after event after event and doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment. And you do like get incredibly exhausted by it. And it's kind of like it, it muddies everything and it's hard to, to focus. Um, and truly that was not your responsibility to be honest. So I hope that you hear me when I say that. Um, (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you knew this. I think I said this to you, but, um, Dr. Hal Dietz and my brother-in-law did this podcast interview with my sister's doctors and they talked about beds and they talked about my sister's case and he talked about the uniqueness of mosaicism and he made this comment that like in some ways we read the textbook of beds but then in other ways we don't because my mom has mosaicism and so usually when you see multiple siblings usually you see like aunts and uncles or parents have conditions too and so like that was kind of something that muddied the water and because because my because of my medical history and my brother's medical history, they were able to diagnose my sister really easily because they right away were like, okay, we got to do genetic testing. And like, I could have gone so many more years not knowing what was going on. And like my sister dying might've saved my, like she probably saved my life in the way, like her getting diagnosed the way she did. And um, like in that way, I'm really I'm thankful that I only had to go through a year really of going through medical stuff to finally get an answer. Cause I know you, I think you said you went like five years or people go so much of their life just with this unanswered question. And like, at least I have an answer to the question. It's not necessarily a good one all the time, but at least it's some kind of answer 
Yeah. And uh, that podcast, that was the cardiology nerds, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw a link to that in the, yeah. in the episode show notes. So if anybody wants to go and listen to her story and Dr. Dietz and um, I, I remember listening to that. I think it was last year and it was fantastic. Yeah. So I'll throw a link in there for anybody yeah. who wants to go and listen to it. It's incredible. I think for, for such a tragic thing that happened, I think it's incredible that they took that, took ownership of it and used it to educate other doctors so that this mm-hmm. would hopefully not happen again to somebody else. Like that's the one thing that helped me kind of, I don't know. I think like, that's kind of what helps me move forward. Right. It's like, I can't change the past and I could have like, you know, I, I wish I could have pushed harder earlier on to prevent all of this stuff from happening to me later. And I don't have family members with this. Um, but all I can do now is try to like change it for other people so that they don't have to go through it. Yeah. It's become my, like, I mean, I've always been very open about my medical condition and like, even throughout my life before I knew what was beds, like my family was pretty open about the fact that our brother had passed away very suddenly. And, um, so, but it's become my lifelong mission that every nurse and doctor I meet, I tell them my story. Cause I'm like, Hey, just because I look like a healthy 24 year old, like I'm, I have this cardiovascular disease that's life-threatening and like even in that podcast, they were saying like, it doesn't matter what age or race or background you come from, like these diseases can affect anybody. And it's like, we have to be very vigilant of that. Like not to be living in fear that everybody has these diseases, but like when you have them, there are signs and we can do better about educating each other and hopefully improving the lives of people that do have it. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that you're focused on that and you're and bring that to the doctors that don't know about it. That's wonderful. Yeah. Truly. When you tell medical professionals about this, like what is the, what is the top thing that you really want them to know? Cause I know a lot of doctors do listen to this podcast. Oh, um, I mean, usually I just kind of regurgitate my, my, my family history and I'm like, Hey, look, I have this connective tissue disorder. My lung has collapsed eight times. Please take me seriously. I've lost two siblings for it. And I always preface, like, I always tell them what exactly my symptoms are too. Like, and I always say, like, if, if I think it's a lung collapse, I will say that. Or, and I always, I also say like, I'm not a China doll. Like I, I know my symptoms and like, please, I try to communicate, like, I'm going to tell you what I think is wrong. Like, I'm not coming in here panicking. I'm not coming in here trying to tell you how to do your job, but like, here are the facts, here are my history, and this is what I'm concerned about. So please take me seriously. So that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah. And hopefully that like that seeps in to like future conversations that they have with other patients that maybe mm-hmm. can tie some loose ends together. I yeah. think that's so important. I think truly, I think that storytelling, like when you tell your story, I think that there's such power in it Mm -hmm. you know like when you read something in a textbook it's not the same as hearing somebody tell their story about it so in a way you're kind of putting those pieces together and in a way that hopefully like sticks in their brain and yeah yeah well and like I know you look I I always kind of take the time to look at my 
medical charts and make sure that it's accurate and up to date and that I didn't miscommunicate or a doctor didn't hear something wrong. And like, you look at my medical history and there's literally like four, four words. It says like family history. It's like aortic dissection and brother early death. And then it says aortic dissection and sister early death. And there's like three little lines and you could read it and you can be like, Oh, but they, when you actually tell the story, but like, look, like literally two of my siblings have died under 30 years of age. Like this is serious. And I'm not saying that I'm coming in here with an aortic dissection currently, but please like come with that lens that this is a, this is a serious condition and treat it such that, and like even just a broader education too, like this is what happens in a condition like that. And it's very unpredictable and it doesn't matter if we look young or healthy, this is what can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Is that advice that you would give to somebody else with vets is to yeah, I think, I think for your own sake to like, always kind of have kind of like have your like elevator pitch of your, of your medical history, kind of like always not like recited word for word, but always be ready to like, just give like a quick, it doesn't have to be long, but maybe like a three minute spiel of like, look, this is what's happened to me. This is my condition, but then also be clear of like, this is actually what I'm coming in for today, but I want you to like get this background so that you understand the lens in which I'm coming into today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great advice, truly. And sometimes it gets so murky, just Mm -hmm. trying to get through a doctor's appointments. Like you can't always, you can't always win. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But um, Well, and like you have, you have doctors that I've had a doctor who I came in, not to go too much into a side story, but I was having really bad anxiety and I kind of knew it was anxiety. I was having chest pain, but it was going on for like five days and it was really stressing me out. And I knew I was more anxious, but like, I was kind of like, you know what, let me just make an appointment and just figure this out because I don't want to miss anything. And I went in and I started telling my doctor the symptoms and she's like, um, like, I think you just have anxiety. And like, I just got this, like, I just got so angry. And I was like, okay, I think it is anxiety, but have you freaking looked at my chart? And I like explained my whole medical history. And she's like, oh okay, like I can see why you're here. And she actually apologized to me. She was like, I didn't read your chart fully and I can understand why you're coming in here. And she's like, I still think it's anxiety, but let's just run some tests and take this seriously. And so like, I, like, it was a little traumatic for me because like, I, I kind of knew I was going to get that reaction, but I was like, I'm not a hypochondriac. And like, that's insecurity of mine that I have that I'm going to be perceived as a hypochondriac. And I'm like, I'm coming in because I have this really dramatic family history of my own medical history that I don't want to ignore the symptom, even if I'm like 90% sure I know what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think like, don't, yeah, you have to be, I think I've told this somebody, like you have to be confident and like, it's okay if you're wrong, but like, you need to trust your instincts. And if your instincts are telling you that something is wrong, like, just keep pushing for it. Even if they, sometimes you feel belittled or you feel like misunderstood. Um, yeah. So <laughs> that was a little bit of a tangent, <laughs> no, I think it's important to talk. I mean, that's like a little bit of medical PTSD there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really important to, to talk about that and recognize that because truly like there's a reason why you're anxious about it, even if it's you know, eventually going to be labeled as anxiety because they ruled out an aortic mm-hmm. section. There's a good reason why 
you were anxious about it coming in. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that is so often like overlooked as value. I know when I go in and I think it's like, there's a, like, I have a chronic hip problem. Mm -hmm. It seems like, and that I'm just figuring out, but there have been times where I have like this intense pain, for instance, in my groin and I go and I think that's a vascular issue. And I've gone a couple times to make sure it's not a vascular issue yeah. because I've had dissections, you mm-hmm. know, or I have one like that happened multiple times in my carotid artery. And it just makes me so nervous that it could be that. So you go in and you have all of this like worry and you're trying to be very, um, you know, level-headed when you go in and all of this stuff and trying to remember like, Hey, it's probably nothing. But then when it is nothing, then you beat yourself up because you're like, Oh, it was nothing. But I think what's overlooked and what I'm getting at here is the value of ruling that out. Like it was past, it was bothering you for five days. Mm -hmm. You know, this chest pain was bothering you for five days. And even if it was anxiety, like the value of getting that, that aortic dissection or that lung collapse even ruled out is still valuable. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And you can kind of move on from it. Like sometimes you get stuck. Yes, absolutely. And like my lung doctor, he literally has this standing chest x-ray order for me. And whenever I feel anything, I call his office and I'm like, you know what? I think I'm just going to get an x-ray because Sometimes like I have caught, like I've caught two different lung collapses before going in myself, like calling their office. And I was like, I don't feel like sitting in the urgent care. Cause I'm pretty sure I know what's happening. And I go and get it. And they call me back and they're like, yep. And my doctor is like, it's not too bad. So if you're breathing, okay. And you're feeling all right, you can go home and I'll just see you tomorrow. And I was like, I had to, I got to miss the whole like urgent care check-in and everything. And like, he was confident enough of me because I have that communication with him. And he's somebody that like, even a lot of times, like I'll kind of be like, Oh, I don't think it's anything. And he's like, you know what? Let's just get an x-ray. It's not that big of a deal. Like I already have the order in, let's just check it out. And they definitely like that first year of getting diagnosed. I went in multiple times with urgent care and I would kind of tell them, I'm like, yeah, I think I might be overreacting, but I'm just worried about this. And for the most part, most of the doctors were like, you know what, let's just do a simple chest x-ray and then we can move on. If it's nothing, you can go home. If it is something, we'll check it out. And um, now I'm starting to kind of recognize like when I know it's really anxiety and like, and I'm getting more comfortable with my diagnosis and my own symptoms and know my body well enough. That's like, but still like, I I feel like people always tell you you're better safe than sorry, but like you really truly need to believe that. And like, not like you said, like beat yourself up. You kind of just have to like, you, you really have to like trust your instincts, even if your instincts are kind of going haywire from anxiety, like just, it's better just to, just to go and get it over with. So you can move on if it's nothing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And being gentle with yourself is so important. I feel like there's a period after your diagnosis. Um, and I don't know if this is true for, for people who were diagnosed as children, that's probably a whole nother ball game there, but I know like diagnosed as an adult, you go through this period where like you're relearning everything about your body that you thought you knew, like for years and years and years, you might've been ignoring things that you find out after your diagnosis were actually 
dissections or aneurysms or, you know, something that you ignored and Mm -hmm. then having to like question everything then and be like, there's this really, it can last a few years, I think at least where you're, you know, maybe you do have quite a few emergency room visits at the beginning as you're figuring this all out and that's okay. Like, yeah. you, like, I hope that somebody listening to this, like really hears that, that that's okay. Like if you're going yeah. through that, it is a hard thing to go through and you do have to relearn your body. Yeah. I mean, I definitely had quite a few emergency visits and, um, I remember this one ER doctor, he was really funny. He was, um, I went in and I was like, yeah, I think I might be freaking out. And he's like, you know what? There's a lot of people coming here that complain about stuff. And it's like, not to say that they don't take it seriously, but he's like, there's a lot of complainers here. He's like, you're somebody that you're totally valid for coming in. And he's like, I don't care if you come in every single day because you're worried about something. I'd rather you come in and I say you're fine. than you go home and I miss something. And he's like, I believe you don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. And he like gave me a heart echo that day because I was really worried about something. He's like, you know what? I have time. Do you want to just do a heart echo so we can rule out anything? And I was like, sure. And he was like patiently going through it. And it was just, it made me feel so good because I knew I was freaking out, but he was just like, no, you made the right call. You have a valid condition and it's okay if you come in here freaking out. Like I'd rather you come in here than freak out at home and it actually be something. And so like after that visit, I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah. So. That's such an act of kindness on his part. Yeah. No, he yeah. was really cool. And for the most part, that's been my experience. Like I've had, I've been really lucky to have a lot of really compassionate doctors, but it only takes like one or two of those times where like, you totally get dismissed that you're just like, you feel really stupid and you're just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Is there one last thing that you would want anybody listening to know? about vets, about your story? Yeah. Um, kind of finishing up our earlier comment, like I'm just over two years with my medical condition and I haven't had a medical emergency since April, 2021. So it's been over a year. And I think that's where a lot of these emotions are starting to come up because I don't have this life-threatening physical thing in front of me to deal with. So like I'm not just stuck, like I'm still stuck in this survival mode, but it's not like I'm actively dealing with something life-threatening. And so like, I've found that it's easier to live in that survival mode. It's easier to respond to these events. Like you get so used to that. Like I was ending up in the hospital every couple months for a while. And then my sister died and it was COVID. And you just kind of like keep going in this survival mode. And now that it's been over a year since I've had something, it's like, my brain is starting to catch up and being like, oh my land, like, not that I don't, I don't think I was necessarily like repressing emotions during that whole time, but it's just like your brain just doesn't have the time to like really cope with everything going on. And so it's like, I almost have more anxiety now than I did going through all that seasons. And it's like, sometimes this is going to sound really bad, but sometimes you almost wish that you could be in the hospital because it's like that, you know how to deal with it. You know how to respond to something like that. But then it's like this whole, like, the fear of it and like the coping with the emotions, that's just such an uncharted territory that it's like, you're kind of grasping for some kind of like something to hold on to. And so it's just been an interesting season because I think a lot of that grief and a lot of that emotion is starting to catch up with me over this last year. 
And so I've had to be a lot more gentle with myself now than when I was, when I was ending up in the hospital, because it's like, I'm learning to cope in a whole new way. And I think that has just been surprising to me. And um, I think something that we all go through um, in kind of different seasons, and I'll probably go through it again (laughs) in a couple of years or who knows when, but um, I think just being aware that it's like, it's just kind of a roller coaster and um, you kind of have to learn to have a little bit of humor with it or else you can kind of go crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of us do deal with it. Um, with humor. (laughs) So thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on and sharing your Mm -hmm. story and definitely for taking a deeper dive into all of these emotions. I think it's so important to talk about and for people to hear it because there's probably more than one person listening to this that has gone through those emotions as well and just needed to hear that they're not alone in it. So thank you for being so open about that. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks for letting me share it's been a while since I've been so candid. So it's actually really healing for me to like admit, like, I'm still really scared. I still don't know what I'm doing. And it's been two years and I still kind of feel like a fish out of water sometimes. And I think you have to, it's a little cliche, but you, you start getting used to like being okay with not being okay. And, um, you, you eventually you learn how to live your life through that, but it's just kind of, it's up and down and some days are better than others. And you just, yeah, you just, uh, you just kind of go with it. <laughs> yeah, Roll with the punches, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again so much, Sarah. Yeah. All right. Bye. <laughs> thanks everyone for listening in today. And thank you, Sarah, for sharing your story and the emotions you've been navigating with vets. In our next episode on October 1st, we'll talk to Jeremiah Taze, who was on the podcast back in 2019. He'll share his perspective on the last three years, as well as his experience with the bowel perforation last year. Don't forget to subscribe to the Staying Connected podcast on your podcast player so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like this show, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends on social media to help us raise awareness of vets together. You can also support the production of this podcast by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash translucent one. Thank you so much, and I will see you soon.